Good evening. The killing continues in Palestine as Israel's prime minister rejects Biden's call to end the bombing of Gaza. It's the birthday of Malcolm X. He would have been 96 and 100 years since the bloody Tulsa massacre. We hear from living survivors. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed Wednesday to press ahead with a fierce military offensive in the Gaza Strip, pushing back against calls from the United States to wind down the operation that's left hundreds dead. Israel continued to pound Hamas targets in Gaza with airstrikes, while Palestinian militants bombarded Israel with rocket fire throughout the day. In another sign of potential escalation, Militants in Lebanon fired a rocket barrage into northern Israel. Netanyahu says he's determined to continue this operation until its aim is met. Pacifica's Eileen Alfandari has more. Israeli airstrikes killed at least six more people across the Gaza Strip and destroyed the home of an extended family early this morning. University professor Ahmed Al-Astal says 40 members of his family lived in the building in the southern Gaza town of Khan Yunus. They all escaped injury as they ran for their lives. After we returned from dawn prayer, and while it was still dark, we were surprised by a drone rocket, which was followed by an S-16 missile 10 minutes later, taking down the house, while all the surrounding houses sustained damage. This behind us reflects the humanity in them, demolishing the houses while its inhabitants are inside, people leaving their houses during the night, terrifying children and the elderly. A separate Israeli airstrike killed a journalist whose home was bombed. Another airstrike wounded a second journalist. Despite growing international pressure for a ceasefire, the Israeli military said it widened its strikes on Gaza. But Hamas still let loose with another barrage of rocket strikes on Israel. At least 222 Palestinians have been killed in the fighting, including 63 children and 36 women, with 1,530 people wounded. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. About 58,000 Palestinians have fled their homes. Twelve people in Israel, including a five-year-old boy, a teenager, and a soldier, have been killed by rockets fired from Gaza. The only Palestinian-American in the U.S. Congress, Rashida Tlaib, confronted President Biden on the tarmac as he arrived in Michigan for a tour of a Ford electric vehicle plant. Tlaib reportedly told Biden he must do more to protect Palestinians. Biden later addressed Tlaib as he delivered a speech at the Ford facility, but made no promises. I tell you what, Rashid, I want to say to you that uh, I admire your intellect, I admire your passion, and I admire your concern for so many other people. And it's my, from my heart, I pray that your grandma and family are well. I promise you I'm going to do everything to see that they are on the West Bank. You're a fighter, and God, thank you for being a fighter. Meantime, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Gregory Meeks, no longer plans to send a letter to Biden requesting a delay in a $735 million sale of precision-guided missiles to Israel. Meeks reportedly faced significant pushback to sending the letter from other Democrats on the committee. Thanks, Eileen. That's Eileen Alfandari reporting for Pacifica Radio on WBAI. The Palestinian Ministry of Health reports as of moments ago, 227 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's attacks.
And in fast developing news, Democratic U.S. lawmakers today introduced a resolution seeking to block the $735 million sale of precision guided weapons to Israel, a symbolic response to conflict between Israel and Gaza's ruling Hamas group, although it's a one-sided conflict. Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Mark Pocon, and Rashida Tlaib were lead sponsors of the measure, which has at least six other co-sponsors. Democratic President Joe Biden's administration approved the potential sale of the weapons to Israel earlier this year and sent the proposal to Congress for formal review on May 5th, giving lawmakers 15 days to object under laws governing foreign weapons sales. The resolution is unlikely to progress further in the House, where the office of Speaker Nancy Pelosi controls which legislation comes up for a vote. Israel has been the largest recipient of U.S. foreign assistance since World War II, with Washington currently providing Israel some $3.8 billion a year in military aid. And back in the United States, a North Carolina prosecutor says sheriff's deputies were justified in their fatal shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. last month. District Attorney Andrew Womble said Brown struck a deputy with his car and nearly ran him over while ignoring commands to show his hands and get out of the car. Mr. Brown's death, while tragic was justified because Mr. Brown's actions caused three deputies with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office to reasonably believe it was necessary to use deadly force to protect themselves and others. Womble acknowledged Brown was not armed. Family members who've seen the body cam footage have repeatedly uh, said Brown was trying to drive away from deputies serving drug-related warrants and pose no threat. Christine Onestead has this report. Keith Rivers is president of the Pasquotank County NAACP. He says Brown was the victim and the deputies should be fired. The job of a district attorney is to look at any case through the lens of the victim, not to justify the actions of the perpetrators in this case, which are the sheriff's deputies. Allow the courts to decide that. Brown's family released a statement calling Womble's decision both an insult and a slap in the face. I'm Christina Onestet. And thank you for that, Christine. And WBAI will be returning to the state of race relations in small town North Carolina later in this broadcast. Tonight, the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center in New York City is hosting an event to honor what would have been the 96th birthday of Malcolm X. The event is being live streamed on Facebook at this hour and it includes appearances from performers Lauren Hill, Anthony Hamilton and Alice Smith, among others. In Newark, activists plan to keep the memory of Malcolm X alive with a virtual tribute on Thursday. The People's Organization for Progress says the group will observe the 96th birthday of the slain civil rights leader with a roundtable discussion at 7 p.m. Malcolm X's speeches and interviews take up many hours of recordings and have become an iconic symbol of the struggle for black rights in America. In one short segment from a speech delivered in Los Angeles in 1962, Malcolm X laid out his thoughts on violent attacks by police on members of the Nation of Islam. We're made to realize how black people really feel and how fed up we are without that old compromising sweet talk. Stop sweet talking it. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready to clean his house up, he shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. 
And don't try that at home, kids. Malcolm X speaking in Los Angeles in 1962. The clip was provided by the Smithsonian. Besides Malcolm X, Ho Chi Minh, the leader of North Vietnam during much of that country's successful war of liberation against American invaders, we know it as the Vietnam War, was also born on May 19th, 1890, 131 years ago. This month also marks 100 years since the Tulsa Massacre on Memorial Day in 1921, often called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history, when mobs of white residents, many of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. The racist attacks destroyed more than 35 square blocks of the district, at that time the wealthiest black community in the United States, known as Black Wall Street. More than 800 black people were hospitalized and thousands interned afterwards in a camp. Oklahoma claimed 36 died, but a 2001 state commission found as many as 300 were killed. About 10,000 black people were left homeless. In today's money, the destruction was at over $35 billion. Blacks also armed themselves and several white attackers were killed as well in the fighting that ensued. Today, two survivors of the attack, Hughes Van Ellis, age 100, and Viola Fletcher, age 107, brother and sister, testified at congressional hearings looking into legal remedies to compensate survivors and descendants. Viola Fletcher. I'm here seeking justice, and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921. On May 31st in 21, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood. Neighbors of Tulsa, the neighborhood I felt asleep in that night, was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, humanity, heritage, and my family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors, and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me. Greenwood should have given me the chance to make, truly make it in this country. Within a few hours, all of that was gone. The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seeing being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. And other survivors do not. And our descendants do not. When my family was forced to leave Tulsa, I lost my chance of an education. I never finished school past the fourth grade. I have never made much money in my country. State and city took a lot from me. Despite this, I spent time supporting the war effort in the shipyards of California. But most of my life, I was a domestic worker serving white families. I never made much money, but to this day, I can barely afford my everyday needs. Viola Fletcher, age 107, a survivor of the 1921 Tulsa massacre. 
Her brother, 100 years old, is Yuz Van Ellis, a World War II combat veteran who served in an all-black unit in Southeast Asia. He says the survivors and the descendants will never forget what happened in Greenwood. Even at this age of 100, the Tulsa Race Massacre is a footnote in the, in the history books for us. We live with it every day. And the thought of what Greenwood was, was and what it could have been. We aren't just black and white pictures on a screen. We are flesh and blood. I was there when it happened. I'm still here. That's right. That's right. I, my sister was there with the staff. Keeps doing here. We are not asking for his hands out. All we are asking for is for a chance to be treated like a first-class citizen. Yuz Van Ellis, age 100, a survivor of the 1921 Tulsa massacre. WBAI will be looking closer into the massacre of black people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the news next Monday. And an important side note, Yuri Kochiyama, the Harlem-based firebrand Asian-American civil rights activist, was born on the same day as the Tulsa massacre, May 19, 1921. Check out her mural on Old Broadway, just off 125th Street, near modern-day Broadway. And as WBAI covered earlier, the state of North Carolina has become the stage where several dramas are playing out, especially since the murder of George Floyd has sparked protests worldwide. The news organization ProPublica, in a report co-published with the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina, and McClatchy News, traveled to the small town of Graham, where a long-ago lynching at the town courthouse has become a flashpoint in a confrontation over a statue of Johnny Reb. Investigative reporter Carly Brousseau of the News and Observer spoke with WBAI. She says after the Civil War, an activist named Wyatt Outlaw was the first to try and make change, and he paid with his life. There was a pretty substantial black power movement in during Reconstruction, and Wyatt Outlaw was the first black elected official in Graham and in Alamance County. He had a relationship with the governor at the time, who was a Republican and was a leader of the Union League, which was an organization to encourage black people to vote and kind of create a new sort of political awareness among newly emancipated people. The Ku Klux Klan came for him in the night and they took him out of his home and they hung him in front of the courthouse. So something that had been remembered by folks, but the history has really been brought more to light through the recent protest movement and people have shared it and learned more and there have been plays put on about the story and comics drawn on about the story and lots of people are talking about it now. And 40 years after the hanging, a group of whites from the local Ku Klux Klan made a commemoration, not for outlaw, but Johnny Reb. There's kind of an everyman Confederate statue right in front of the courthouse that was put up in 1914 at the dedication ceremony. The master of ceremonies was Jacob A. Long, who was the commander of the Ku Klux Klan during the time that White Outlaw was killed. And things might have remained the same in this small rural town in North Carolina until the killing of George Floyd sparked the largest civil rights protest in the town's history. That was observed by a young New Yorker trying to escape his gang past in the city by heading 
on his mom's advice back home. So Avery Harvey, he grew up um, near Graham in a town called Gibsonville that is in some ways similar to Graham, though not the county seat. And he was traveling to and from New York and came upon the biggest protest that had really ever been in Alamance County of black people in the town square, certainly since White Outlaw's death. And he has become a major player in a really kind of diverse protest movement with all sorts of folks, undocumented folks, people in the black church, lots of artists make up the Black Lives Matter movement as it's come to exist in Graham. And then on the other side, there was a previously existing Confederate heritage group that had been designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And although it's kind of defunct, several people who had been one way or another involved in that and several other folks who joined them have become a kind of group of counter protesters that's also gained its own identity over the months since George Floyd's death. And the protests have grown with the hard-nosed county sheriff using every law at his disposal to frustrate civil rights activists and preserve the statue of Johnny Reb, leading to more protests and lawsuits. There have been a whole bunch of lawsuits related to this. At the beginning of the summer, by which I mean not long after George Floyd's death, um, protests were effectively banned downtown and people were getting threatened with arrest and actually arrested for holding up a sign in the town square. So there were there was a lawsuit related to that. There have been lawsuits later in the year after a big march related to both kind of bringing attention to Wyatt Outlaw's death, George Floyd, and bringing people to the polls in Graham ended in a big cloud of pepper spray. There were subsequently two more lawsuits, civil rights lawsuits, and there's a lawsuit also trying to bring down the monument itself. There have been many trials, most Wednesdays since January, and those are scheduled to keep going at least through July. There have been roughly 75 arrests to date, and I think it's reasonable to assume that will continue. And Graham has become a crucible of change where scores have been arrested, tried and arrested again in the ongoing civil rights protests. It is really a tipping point. I think this movement has been small but very determined. I think the kind of powers that be are also very entrenched. And I think it's hard to say right now what will happen. Rousseau says at its core, the struggle in Graham, North Carolina, is about who has a right to the public square. Feeling like they have a place in the public square, just being able to feel like a full political participant and like you just really have a place in the public space without being seen as a threat or feeling threatened. Investigative reporter Carly Brousseau of the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. Her article, In a Small Town, A Battle for Racial Justice Confronts a Bloody Past and an Uncertain Future, is available at ProPublica.org. And closer to home, today, New York State is following CDC guidelines allowing fully vaccinated people to be indoors without a mask, but private businesses can choose whether or not to continue requiring it. Restaurants must continue to keep customers at least six feet apart or put up barriers in between tables, despite being allowed to open at full capacity. Diners can show proof of vaccination or recent negative tests. Then the six feet rule doesn't apply. 
Another choice restaurants have is to make vaccinated and unvaccinated sections indoors where there'll be likely some growing pains figuring it all out. The next restriction being lifted is the indoor dining curfew, which will end on May 31st. And New Yorkers are trying to build support for wind or solar projects in their communities. Uh, They can turn to a new online toolkit for help. Andrea Sears has the story. It was the hottest year on record, and New York has made developing clean energy to fight climate change a top priority. But sometimes a few vocal opponents of a project can slow it down or stop it completely. Echo Cartwright is New York Climate Mitigation Director with the Nature Conservancy. She says the toolkit, called Building Our Clean Energy Future, provides resources and guidelines for building the community support needed to make those projects a reality. How to write a letter to the editor, how to submit comments in a public hearing, how to gather individuals together within their community to create a support group. She adds that clean energy projects may bring economic benefits to communities as well as fighting climate change. The toolkit is online at nature.org slash nyenergy. Cartwright points out that making the transition to clean energy industries can be a win-win for communities that are struggling to recover from the economic impact of the pandemic. They can definitely help schools and the community by providing tax revenue. It will also include training and workforce abilities for those that might be displaced from the fossil fuel industry. The toolkit describes how projects provide rental income to landowners and an annual credit that residents of host communities receive on their utility bills for 10 years. Cartwright notes that right now, 39% of the electricity in New York comes from fossil fuels that contribute to climate change and exacerbate health problems such as asthma, heart, and lung disease. We are on the cusp of a major transition, replacing fossil fuels, going towards clean renewable energy technologies. All together, it will be a tremendous benefit to solving this climate crisis that we're in. For New York News Connection, I'm Andrea Sears. Thanks, Andrea. It's currently a beautifully clear 82 degrees in New York City. It was 86 earlier. Expect cooler temperatures tomorrow, 74 degrees and partly cloudy. And today, May 19th, museums and other cultural institutions can open at full capacity, but many smaller spaces have reinvented themselves to survive the pandemic. Some have been changed for good. Hannah Fulmer reports. It's been over a year since cultural institutions in the city were forced to close because of COVID-19. With a vaccine rollout well underway, the question now is, which of these institutions survive and how did they do it? The Met raised almost $35 million in emergency donations. But what about smaller institutions? When COVID hit, that basically destroyed our, our last two sources of income, which were admissions to the museum and events. That's Jacob Ford. He's the director of outreach and programming at City Reliquary, a small museum in Williamsburg dedicated to New York City history and culture. COVID-19 hit the museum hard last year, but it's far from alone. Small institutions like the Bronx Academy of Arts and Dance and the Tenement Museum also struggled. The smaller museums have been so empty, which makes sense because even before the pandemic, I didn't know a lot of these existed. Jane Silverstein, a recent college graduate living in Brooklyn, has visited more of these smaller spaces than most. She's currently on a mission to visit every museum in New York City and documents her progress on TikTok under the handle Jane August. 
everyone knows the Met, but there's also like City Reliquary Museum, which is directly across the street from the venue I worked at. We didn't know it existed. My friends thought it was a bodega. In addition to limited visibility, these smaller institutions have smaller physical spaces and limited donor bases. However, their contributions are vital. Frequently, they serve and cover underrepresented communities. The Bronx Academy of Arts and Dance showcases LGBTQ plus artists, for example. The Tenement Museum covers poverty, while most museums present pieces collected by the wealthy. Those communities aren't going to have places to go. And those spaces are going to turn into retail like fronts by big companies. Like, Let's be honest, that's what would happen if these museums closed. But these institutions were quick to make changes to survive. City Reliquary set a goal to raise $3,000 in recurring monthly income. Without it, they would likely have to close the museum's physical space and break up their collection. They developed a new membership model to meet their goal. It's a small and very specific and passionate subset of our membership that has been attending events. Probably a good 60 to 70 percent of our membership base is perfectly happy just being a member and not coming. A lot of them don't even live in New York. The Bronx Academy of Arts and Design and the Tenement Museum also pivoted to rely more on donations and beefed up their virtual programs, which has extended their reach across the country, too. Ford says City Reliquary's new model is healthier and more sustainable. In the past, we've had months where we make a lot more than 3000 because we have an especially successful or large event, but that's not sustainable. I would like to move completely away from admissions and tickets as, as a source of revenue because they're just completely unpredictable. Even if it's less money on paper, having a reliable stream of income per month is so much better. Even as more New Yorkers venture out to cultural spaces, City Reliquary doesn't plan to return to their old structure. The same is true for the Bronx Academy of Arts and Dance and the Tenement Museum. They all see themselves as better protected for the future. Hannah Fulmer, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Hannah. And remember to tune in to WBAI's Malcolm X special directly following this program. And that's the WBAI News for Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry, Eileen Alfandari, Andrea Sears, and Hannah Fulmer. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>